And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In a political environment that's marked by acrimony and gridlock, Adam Kinzinger is a, an admirable aberration. Uh, Congressman Kinzinger, who comes from my home state uh, of Illinois, is, is a Republican who uh, very often is standing up and taking on the strident voices in both parties, including the President of the United States, uh, on issues from foreign policy to health care. I sat down with him uh, after Congress adjourned uh, to talk about where we are, not just in our politics, but our democracy. And here's that conversation. Adam Kinzinger, great to be with you. Thanks. Good to be with you. Glad to see you got a, a break from that hothouse yeah. of Washington. It was getting a little uh, getting a little dark at the end there. <laughs> People were ready to go. So you and I have something in common in that we both uh, – Get, started getting interested in politics at freakishly yeah. young Silly ages. Young. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about about your uh, interest in politics, which began when you were, what, six years old? Yeah. So I think some people are hardwired uh, for certain interests. It, it kind of comes out when you're a kid. And for mine, I remember I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and there was a guy running for mayor of Jacksonville. His name was John Lewis, and he was running against a guy named Tommy Hazori. And John Lewis had gone to my church in Jacksonville, and I remember seeing all these signs. Democrat, by the way, so I, I know. But uh, you see all these signs everywhere around town, and I kind of was interested more in the fanfare of it. You know, what yeah. are the signs? What's the excitement? And I started to pay attention. My folks talked to me about what you know, how democracy works, what politics is. And uh, and I literally began reading the newspaper at like six or seven, which is not normal. Yeah. And, uh, and no, I man, got, I'm right with you. This is you're just <laughs> yeah. my life. Yeah, I think my folks are like, what are we raising here? Oh no. But uh, you know, paid attention. And when I was 12, I remember moved to Illinois and lived in uh, McLean County and got involved in the Republican Party there. And really, just it's something that I couldn't turn off. I tried to a little bit in high school because I thought it wasn't cool enough and, uh, and it just came back. So, yeah. So you, you came to Illinois at 12 and you mentioned that you moved to, uh, to, uh, McLean County. Your, uh, your father worked for the state of Illinois. Yeah, he did. He, uh, so we actually moved a little before 12, but growing up before we moved to Jacksonville, my dad was a, uh, a bureau chief in the Department of Welfare or Welfare Fraud Investigation at the time. I'm not sure, but worked for the state of Illinois. And then we decided to move to Jacksonville because the weather's nice and my grandparents were down there mm-hmm. and eventually decided to come back to Illinois. He missed it. And uh, so we came back, lived in Peoria a few years, and then McLean County is where we finally And settled. he was involved in uh, faith-based yeah. uh, efforts uh, to help poor people, the homeless. Yeah. Talk about that. So I always think it's funny to tell this story because, you know, I'm like, look, my parents are both Republicans. My mom's a public school teacher and my dad ran a homeless ministry and yeah, free a homeless shelter. And, uh, and so people always look and say, how are you a Republican? And I think that's what frankly makes me, and I know it's out of vogue, but the idea of compassionate conservatism, which is, you know, it's not about ripping things away from people. It's about how do we empower people? So my dad taught me at a young age, you know, the Home Sweet Home Mission, which he ran in Bloomington, uh, you could come there and recuperate, and you know, a lot of people struggling with drugs and alcohol. They had a few rules. You have to be sober when you're there. Uh, if you have drug addictions, you have to be working on that. And then while you're there, once you get out of the kind of initial physical recuperation stage, if you want to stay, you have to be working to better your life, whether that's figuring out how to get your GED going to you know some kind of schooling, a trade school, uh, or looking for a job. And each person had a caseworker that kind of helped them through their life. And so there was you know another homeless shelter that was more interested in just giving people shelter, which is fine. But then watching the mission of the Home Sweet Home Mission, which was like, we want to help people improve their lives. And you know, you get sad stories where, you know, you have a guy that was a successful lawyer that came in and, and became an alcoholic and lost everything in his family and worked to get his life better. And some people fail at getting better and some people are successful. And that was what really inspired me. Do you, uh, did you hear these stories when you were a kid? Did your father talk about this? Did you, did you actually go down to the shelter yeah. and, 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 and see what? Uh, what was happening there. I I did. And I think, you know, at the beginning, I was kind of too young to realize when I was 12 or whatever, exactly what was going on. As I got older, I got more interested. 
they had a thrift shop I worked at as a kid. I worked for like six months as a janitor, which isn't the most exciting job, but taught me a lot. And you get to interact with a lot of people and just, you know, hear their stories. Dad, he, he wouldn't always bring work home, but sometimes he'd tell stories of somebody that came in that, you know, like I said earlier, had everything and lost it and now has to regain. And so I think it kind of gave me an understanding of how quickly somebody's life can go off the rails and how to recognize that. But then how, you know, when you see somebody on the street, it's begging for money, and I have this problem, the tendency is to look past them and walk yeah, away. Yeah. But these are human lives with, with concerns yeah. and interests and family. My wife, uh, Susan, always says, that's somebody's baby. Yeah. And that that just grabs me, you know. But um, but it's interesting uh, that, that um, those experiences uh, kind of – uh, accentuated your interest in the Republican yeah. uh, Party. Uh, what is government's role? Did they did 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 that ministry get any funding from government? Or? I think it got. I think at points they got some help, uh, but mostly it was self sufficient. It came under the umbrella of United Way as well, so some United Way help, but mostly it was private donations and people in the community that helped out and. And I, you know, it is, it's counter narrative, which I think is unfortunate for my party that somebody can see this and then become a Republican. That shouldn't be a confusion for people, but I've always seen it kind of this way is, you know, Democrats and Republicans are both very compassionate folks. They both have the same goal, which is to help people in a very successful country. Um, I see how to do it. And this kind of gets into my role of government. Government should provide a safety net for people, but also should do everything it can to help people not need that safety net. And then its job is to build roads and defend the country and and help educate people. But, um, you know, and Democrats, who I disagree with on some of these issues, very compassionately believe that the role of government is is slightly different in that. And I think this is something that's gotten lost in the narrative is – Democrats look at Republicans as heartless, evil people. Republicans look at Democrat, uh, Democrats as you know enabling and heartless in a different way. And we forget the fact that we all actually really want the same thing. It's just the great thing about our country is we can debate how to get there. Do you think, um, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because I want to I pick up the thread of your story. Do you think that uh, the role of government is different in the 21st century because of the change? Yeah, I know you sit on the uh, energy and commerce committee so you're you're watching the evolving nature of the economy mm-hmm. technology and so on um, so in, in areas like education and training do you think that uh, that was the the congressman's uh, cell phone yeah, for those sorry, of you yeah, no. that's okay this is real man sure, yeah. this is this, this is, is real life, real right live here. podcasting <laughs> so uh, we take we take all the sounds that come with that's it that's right um uh, but tell the president you'll have to call him back. Okay? I will. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, do you think that uh, the role of 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 government is different? I mean, I think a lot about how fast things are changing yeah. and the economy is changing, and how hard it is to get our arms around all of it. So I think the principle can be the same, but yes, I think it does change to an extent. So think about uh, you know back in the 1700s, uh, they could never imagine autonomous vehicles. Right. And and they could never imagine an interstate system and crossing boundaries from Illinois to Indiana would have an effect. And so, you know, as our committee is dealing with the the coming trend of automated vehicles, autonomous vehicles happening. I love, by the way, the fact that it's called autonomous vehicles. Somebody obviously did some research and decided that driverless cars didn't sound didn't sound good. So AV is easy to say, you know, that's, that's nice. But. So you think about it, I believe the government should have a very light touch in this, which is allow the private sector to innovate, because in that innovation, you know, we'll be able to beat Europe and the Chinese and anybody else we're competing against. But at the same time, there has to be a role for the federal government, because when you cross from Illinois to Indiana, if you have different rules set by the state government, theoretically, your AV, your autonomous vehicle could shut down because maybe Indiana has more more strict laws against that. So there's a role for the federal government there. I think, you know, we see in the banking system and in everything, there's a role for the federal government to provide oversight. What about the the people who used to drive these cars and yeah. trucks that are now autonomous? Is there a... Is, I, I'm, I, I don't have all the answers to this, but my great concern is that large numbers of people yeah. will find themselves 
out of work. Yep. Uh, and um, what is what is the role of government to try and help transition these people to other uh, other jobs and to provide some sort of security? Yeah, I think it's I think it's in giving people opportunity and job training to foresee what's coming in the future and give people that opportunity. So Rockford, Illinois, in my district, uh, it went from tool and die to now it's big in aerospace. And there's a lot of jobs open in aerospace in Rockford, uh, but there's a lot of people that were in tool and die that don't have the training. Mm -hmm. So how can we play that role? Is it giving money to the states and helping them innovate? Is it federal job programs? I think it's all the above. What we have right now, though, is a government that over 50 years has grown to where there's, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of job training programs. How do we consolidate that? But I think it's also understanding. So with AV, if we don't lead this revolution, uh, people that are innovating in AV that are programming and all this kind of stuff are going to be located in Europe and not here. So it's understanding that that change is coming. Yeah. And then making sure that we lead the way in terms of filling the jobs to do that. But yes, it's a it's a big concern in terms of you know whether it's an Uber driver, a taxi driver, a truck driver, or I think in but that's just years, one of the industries that's going to change. Every industry yeah. is going to change. Every. I mean, I think it's the the logic of capitalism that corporations, if they can rationalize their operations and use computers and robots, I mean, we lose four of five jobs, not to China and Mexico, but to robots and computers. That's right. That's right. So, you know, I think part of the role of our – and government doesn't do this well because government's filled with a bunch of people thinking in two-year cycles, which is a problem, but it's a fact. Um, we have to think, what are the trends for the future? How do we lead that in the future? And I don't think the economy is a zero-sum game. So it's not a matter of if we if we lead the way, Europe's not going to be able to do something, or if Illinois does well, Indiana's going to do poorly. But it's I think it's thinking kind of in that broad... I don't have the answers either to all of it, but I know that technology's coming, and it yeah. can't be stopped. Yes. And so how do we give people yeah. that opportunity I, to, I, to I, learn? I feel so strongly about this. And this, by the way... Um, was one of my concerns about the Make America Great Again approach because, first of all, I think America's great. But Thank secondly, um, in the, the, the intimation was that we could go back. Right. You know, uh, and that somehow we could rebuild the economy of the past when the world is moving forward. That's right. And we need a, we need a strategy for dealing uh, with that. Let me return to your... Uh, story. So, uh, ta- you've, you're a precocious guy, and you went off to Illinois State, uh, yeah, it's an which Ivy is in League your home, yep. home, mm-hmm. home, home county, uh, and you ran for the county board while you were <laughs> yeah. while you were a student. Yeah, yeah, how did that come about? So, I went through a little rebellious period in my life, and uh, actually, I just started telling this story because I think it's good to tell. Um, I went to college, joined a fraternity, and failed out of college for my first year, and took a little time. You wouldn't be months. the first guy to have yeah, that I wouldn't story. be the first, no. And uh, took some time, worked, and really realized, you know, it's kind of how some people take a super senior year or whatever and go travel. And I realized, like, education is really important. I can do this. So I went back, reapplied, got in, got my life straight. And uh, I was at a Republican meeting, a local meeting, and and somebody said to me, I think it was a joke. I really do. They said, you should run for the county board. So I'm 39, and I think I still look young, although it's catching up. It's catching up. You do. It's D.C. But, uh, Everything's relative, but you look young. <laughs> when I was 20, I looked like I was 14 years old. Almost <laughs> no lie. So so I decided, I look at who my county board member is. He'd been there for 12, 12 years and um, decided to run. And I end up beating him. And it's kind of a quick, funny aside. I was doing door-to-door. And I'd show up and say I'm running for county board, and everybody would laugh at me because I looked too young. So I switched to just calling people on the phone and putting out <laughs> yard signs, and it worked. But uh, you, you got to learn your assets. I, I sounded 20, but I didn't look 20. So, uh-huh. But I ended up winning that, and it was uh, it was pretty interesting. What What did you learn as a 20 year old on the county board? I learned to shut up for a while. Uh, somebody said to me, they go, listen, your first year, I think they try to do That's this in the Senate. That's a hard thing for a politician to it learn. It is. And a young guy, too, that thinks he knows everything. Yeah. Um, so for the first year on the county board, I never said a word at a county board meeting. And I remember on the 13th month, so the 13th meeting, I finally spoke up. And 
and people paid attention, it's, you still had to fight the age thing. Uh, but it was way better than had I come in, you know, January and started spouting about everything I knew. So that's the first thing I learned. The other thing is, you know, look, there's no black and white answers to everything. Some things there are, but for the most part, it, stuff's gray. You know, if you're dealing with, we take a lot of the issues in DC and, and see them as black and white because we've been there forever and we have opinions. But when you're dealing with something like, should you put a curb and gutter in a rural area, require that of a developer, uh, there's no moral answer to that. And so you have to take both sides and make a decision. I think that's why um, local government actually is maybe the most vital. Oh, it is. <laughs> because, you know, that's literally where the rubber hits the road. And you can't hide. Nope. You know, when you're a local official, people yeah. are always. After we had Mitch Landrew on this uh, podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, I guess last week, and uh, he t- we talked a lot about that. Yeah. It's it's a humbling experience to uh, to be a local official. You guys in Congress are a little attenuated, yeah. although it may not feel like it at certain times. But uh, well, and I also think it's more personal in local government. So if somebody doesn't like what you did in local government. You probably grew up with them, and when they're saying that they hate you on the internet or in the newspaper, that's way more hurtful than if I look at Twitter, which I don't really look at much anymore, and it's like, you know, Kinzinger's a loser or whatever. I know this person doesn't know me, and that's just the nature of the beast. Right, yeah. I know the president does tweet a lot. He does, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh, he wasn't the one you were talking about. Quite a bit too much, yeah. He called all of your colleagues (laughs) in the Senate losers. That really helps going into August, yeah. Personally, we'll talk about that, but... So you you were first into politics. Your dad followed you into politics and ran for office. Uh, what, did you encourage him to do that? I think so. I, he was looking at it. This was a state usually Senate the other race. way around. By the yeah, way, usually is yeah, state Senate race in two thousand and uh, actually it would have been right after two thousand two. I think. I th- yeah, I think he announced in 01, but the two o two was the actual election, and uh, it was against a. Basically, it was an open state Senate seat, but he was running against a guy that had been a state representative for a very long time who's well-known in Illinois named Bill Brady. Yeah, he's now the yep. the, uh, the uh, minority leader in, the, That's in right. the state Senate. Ran for governor, came pretty close, and you know he and I get along very well. But that was, a, that was another eye-opening experience because a state Senate district's not near as big as a congressional district, but it was huge. And I remember at the Especially end of the— Especially downstate. That's then. right, yeah. And I remember at the end of the election, this was when I realized this isn't going to go well, is uh, about two weeks out, because they had just done redistricting. And so the maps were a little questionable. And I remember, I think it was Decatur, looking at the map and realizing we had about 20,000 residents in Decatur that we didn't even know were in the new district. And at that point, I realized yeah, that's, a, that's, not a good, that's not a good thing to you realize. You were running the campaign. Yeah, for a little bit. And uh, we, we handed it over to somebody for a little bit, and then I took it back at the end. And, uh, so you I got a chance a to learn a few things that yeah. probably were useful to you in the future. Yep. And I, le- and I swore off politics after that, after my dad lost. And, uh, but that only lasts for so long. <laughs> no, once 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 it's like any other addiction. It's yeah. hard to hard to lose. But uh, you just you ended up serving in a different way, uh, and you enlisted uh, after nine uh, eleven. Talk about that decision. So I'd always been looking at the military, and I always wanted to fly for the Air Force, and uh, I never. Thought Did you I know was... how to fly before you? Yeah, I got my license right after college. I graduated in December of two thousand. Um, and I looked at, but I, you know, I'd always been told you have to be great at math and science and have good grades to be an Air Force pilot. Well, I, I'm okay at math, science, don't know much about, and uh, well, I do, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the chemistry major, and uh, and my grades were great except for that first year, and uh, and I just didn't think I was smart enough to do it. Well, nine eleven happens, and I remember I was driving to work. Um, and I heard this happen. It's like there's there's moments I've had two, maybe three, but definitely two in my life that turn, turn you on a dime. One was an incident in Milwaukee and the other is this. The first yes. was this one. And this one, I remember hearing the planes hit the World Trade Center. And people forget that up to that time, we felt totally invincible and invulnerable. You know, uh, it, we had been involved in Kosovo and Bosnia, but it was always wars over there and it was just air power. It was never brought home. That brought it home, and I realized that my job, I'm going to do everything I can to go defeat the enemies that did this to us. And, and uh, you, you enlisted in the, in the uh, Air, yep. Air Force Reserve. Uh, how long before you saw action? So I went to officer training in 03, uh, pilot training in 04, finished pilot training, I think it was like April of 05, 
And then I did my first deployment. It was to Turkey, so it wasn't extreme combat or anything, but it was in a combat zone. I think that was fall of 05. And did, that, I flew tankers, KC-135s, for a few years. And then in 07, I wanted to do something more with the guys on the ground, more in the action, and uh, frankly, honestly, a little more dangerous. And so I, I switched to... You know, everybody that serves in the military does extremely important stuff. I just felt like I needed to put myself more in danger, not out of some sense of, you know, fatalism, but just there's a lot of people dying on the ground. And, you know, I love tanker pilots and I love flying a tanker, but being 30,000 feet overhead just didn't satisfy me. And this program opened up as part of the surge. It was the RC-26. So I became what we call a mercenary. So I flew both planes for a while, but deployed to Iraq with that uh, twice. And that's what I still fly today. And what uh, what what did you learn from that experience? From uh, your experience in the actual theater of of war, there I didn't. You know, you learn some from a tanker, but from the RC twenty six, I was based out of Iraq in Balad. Uh, we were actually in the special forces compound, so I don't want to call myself a special forces guy, but that's who we were attached to. So we supported them, and. Uh, you know, we'd get attacked. You'd have rocket attacks. You'd have stuff like that, uh, mortar attacks. I think what I learned the most was, uh, despite, I don't want to sound too existential with this or too political, but it kind of helps me today. There were Democrats and Republicans fighting that war. And we would talk about politics and have fun with it. But, you know, when you were in the action, you know, and I wasn't kicking down doors, but I was a few thousand feet overhead. And, uh, and engaging in this, there's no Republicans or Democrats because we're all fighting for this country. And I think that's what drives me nuts today in this job is when I see people that sit around the voting box and they know they should vote yes, for instance, but they're going to vote no because they're scared about a primary or an election. And it's like, look, you're asking men and women to die for your country, like 18, 20 year olds to die for your country. You've got to be willing to take that career ending vote if it's the right thing. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger. This point you raise about uh, the perspective you gain in combat reminds me of conversations I've had here uh, with others about what the impact was of the greatest generation in politics and the fact that you had Republicans and Democrats, almost all of whom had served in World War II, uh, and had that bond. And as they faded away, you saw a new generation of politicians come along who really didn't have that experience. Not, uh, not that many of them had served in Vietnam. And, uh, and so you lost that sense of common purpose, of common uh, you know, values and so on. Um, do you think that uh, with the rise of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, that that will have a calming influence on our politics? I certainly hope so. Um, do, you, do, have, you, do you talk, are you friendly with uh, veterans? Oh, sure. On both, uh, sides. on both sides? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if that changes what the politics, but I think it does change the tone. And you know, you look at back post-World War II, the good thing is everybody was united by a common cause, which is communism is evil. It doesn't matter how far right or how far left you were, you fought communism. So you can argue, but you still had that common enemy. That doesn't really exist today. And so that's a con- not that we need to create one, but that's, a, that's an issue. Um, but it does make a difference. So I was the second post-9-11 veteran elected to Congress. The first was Duncan Hunter. And, uh, and now there's plenty of them. And I think I just read today that something like 20% of the House is a veteran. That's a good thing. And we're seeing new veterans on both sides come in. And my hope is, yes, that we can use that to, uh, to begin to create a narrative. The problem is the veterans aren't in power yet in leadership. And, uh, and so they're not setting the agenda. They're not in power in these, um, in these, whether these talk show hosts that are on both sides that are just spewing venom or whether it's these groups like, you know, Club for Growth or, or Freedom Works or some of those groups that are interested more in, in creating dissension. Um, that's on our side. And I'm sure there's that on the left. Um, we've got to be able to get past kind of the noise of primary season and, uh, and just do the right thing. And I think if there is a group that's going to do that, it's, it's these folks. You mentioned that you had another, kind of defining experience, uh, and that happened up in Milwaukee. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you fly into 
into uh, a war zone and you know that you're at risk and and you know something dramatic might happen but you had an experience in Milwaukee that was wholly unexpected w- yeah. what happened so i just gotten back from a mission um it was a domestic mission i took my buddy and my girlfriend out to uh to dinner and had a couple drinks and i remember i left and it was on north avenue and uh it was a german place and we left it i specifically remember 12:26 in the morning and this was in august of 06 and I'm walking to my car with my girlfriend, and this girl's running across the street, holding her throat, screaming. He cut my throat. He cut my throat, and she's bleeding out. I mean, I've it's 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 a mess. And and I remember the first. There's a lot of things that happen in combat or in a, tra- a situation like this. You get time distortion, so time slows down. You get auditory exclusion, so you can't hear anything but but what you're focused on. And I had all that. And but the first thought was, this is a joke. It's like a Halloween prank. But then I realized it was real. And to make a very long story short, I'll say there were two thoughts that went through my head. One is, if I fight this guy, she was being followed by the, the guy. The guy with the knife. Yeah. And it was her, her boyfriend, actually. And uh, I said, if I fight him, I'm going to die or get stabbed. I'd, I'd fight a guy with a gun at close range before I would with a knife or a guy with a knife. The second thing, though, is I remember thinking specifically, I can't watch this happen to her and live with myself the rest of my life. Like as a man, as an American, as a military officer. So a lot of interaction, make a long story short. Well, wait a second, a lot of interaction, (laughs) what does that mean? So I, initially I, I try to calm him down. So he's kind of matching her pace. So I think he's in his mind debating whether to go after her again. And uh, people talk about murderous looks in people's eyes. He had it, just blank. And I, so I tried to calm him, and he'd look at me and look away back at her. And then I switched to, like, scream and yell at him. Try to get him to bite off on me because I can outrun him. And, uh, again, just look at me with a blank stare and go after her. Everything was happening. Found out later there's, like, ten witnesses. Nobody's helping. I'm screaming for people to help me. I'm yelling for people to get her in a car. It's all kinds of stuff going on at once. And interestingly, my memory of this is way more clean than what actually happened. I saw the surveillance tape about four years later, and I'm like, wow, that was way closer than I ever remember. And that's part of your brain's way to protect yourself. Anyway, she gets in a car behind me. I don't see this. He sees it, and he flanks around me real quick. And I turn, and I see him pull her out of the car and goes to stab her again. And I grab his knife hand and throw my arm around his neck, and we grapple for probably 15 to 20 seconds in the street. He's a bigger guy than me. I'm not huge. And uh, and I remember he's trying to stab me now. So the pressure goes from down on the wrist to now towards my chest. And it's it's I'm literally fighting for and my life. And still nobody is No, there's a guy that's kind of mirroring us a little bit. He, he wants to help, doesn't know what to do. But I made the decision, and this is the first and hopefully only time I'll ever have to do this. I made the decision to kill him. I'd, I'd, I was within my rights to do it. But I end up after 20 seconds grappling him, getting him on the ground, pin him down. And thankfully, I didn't have a third arm because that would have been the killing arm. And uh, so all my energy was in immobilizing him. And uh, my girlfriend turned around, saw us down, came. I told her to kick the knife out of his She hand. must have been terrified. She, yeah, she was. She was very heroic in it, though. Uh, helped this girl and everything. And he stopped fighting at that point. And uh, I, I wish I had audio of what I was saying because I'm sure it was a lot of F-bombs at him. But... Uh, Finally, the police show up probably about 15 seconds after I had him down. She's, he got charged with attempted murder, and she's alive, and like 100-some stitches in her neck she got out of that. Do you, have you kept in touch with her? No, I did. We, we, there's, on YouTube, there's a couple of things where we reunited. Uh, that was before I was in politics, and she's kind of gone, gone dark since. Yeah, well, that's certainly preparation for some of these debates in Congress. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you always say no matter how bad something gets, can never be as bad as that worst day. Speaking of which... Uh, what you said you had dropped out of politics after your dad was uh, defeated in 2002. What uh, caused you? What were you doing in 2010 when you, uh, or before 2010 when you decided to run for Congress? And what made you decide to run? You know, you slowly kind of start paying attention. I mean, I never guess I never quit paying attention, but I was burned out. And anybody that's ever been in a losing race understands that feeling. And but as you mentioned, you can't you can't beat that addiction. And uh, started paying attention. And um, I remember in '09 I was in Iraq. And sorry, Mr. Axelrod, President Obama won, and I made the decision. You know, I think it's time we need a check. I'm going to come back. I'm going to run for Congress. And interestingly, I came back in like May of '09. In hindsight, I wish I'd have taken a couple months off to decompress. 
but I didn't. Came back, I ran, and uh, well, let's stop for a second because when you say decompress, because it's like a, I, I don't think people appreciate what the uh, what the impact is on the men and women who are doing multiple tours uh, of duty. You know, I th- and and the sort of psychological impact of all of that. Yeah. Well, let me give you a, a quick example. So I remember. I land, you know, you come in, basically coming out of Iraq, everybody thinks there's like this huge long process. It isn't. You literally get on a, I got on a plane in Balad, went to Kuwait, went to UA or went to Qatar. And then from Qatar, I got on basically an airliner that was all military. It landed in Baltimore and, uh, and you're done. You're out, you're, you're home. And, uh, I remember actually interestingly coming out of Baltimore, there's like a line of a hundred people that just stand there and applaud. And I always get kind of choked up when I say it because, it, I, I, we owe a lot to the Vietnam veterans for what they went through. Yeah, and uh, they never got the, the applause. They never got it. And, and they, we learned a, a tough lesson from that. Uh, so I'm walking through these lines, getting applauses, get on an airline, and I'm home. Somebody that picked me up, I'll protect this person's identity. I remember I was talking a little about the war, and she immediately just goes, yeah, but you know what Tina said to me, and Tina's uh, was yelling at Joe or whatever it was, and it's just the minutia of home life that you just realize, you know, I just left a war three days ago and somebody's complaining about what Tina said. And that it's hard to explain it until you've been there. So, so you, you, you didn't decompress, but you instead decided to run for combat. Yeah. yeah. Different kind of combat. <laughs> so, uh, decided to run. And, and, uh, the interesting thing, what I had to get past, I was 31, I think, is when I would tell people I was running for Congress, I'd kind of laugh when I'd say it because you felt totally unworthy of it. I'm like, yeah, I'm running for Congress, haha, you know, and and uh, ran against an incumbent here in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And it took me probably six months of pounding pavement, doing all that, going to every meeting for people to start taking me seriously. And that's a lesson I give to anybody go- coming into politics. I don't is, recall, did, did the party uh, recruit you or did you have other, I, I re- did, you have, did you have a winner primary? To- I did. I had a five or six way primary and I got like 65% in it. So it was a good turn. It was good showing. But no, in fact, initially the party seemed to be a little resistant to me, and uh, but not in a Why? bad way, because I wasn't from Will County, which was the biggest at the time in mm-hmm. that district, the biggest part of it. I was from downstate. I was from Bloomington. Mm-hmm. Will County was 50% of the district, um, but I didn't take no for an answer and eventually caught fire a little bit in the party, won that primary, and then you know it was off to the general election. and Which you won by... More than a little. Yeah, it was it was a good it was a good victory. I had a good opponent. It was a, and a good year. It was a good year. Yeah, that was extremely helpful too. And uh, but it was look for about a year and a half. I mean, I wasn't making much money. I was doing traditional guard stuff, so I was getting paid that. I was dipping into savings. A lot of people do. This is what a lot of people don't realize. They they think everybody coming into Congress is rich, and vast majority of them aren't. I was talking to a good friend of mine in leadership that says he basically drained all his accounts to live on to run for Congress. And, you know, it takes a lot of sacrifice. What, uh, what did you learn about Congress that you didn't? What, what, what did you expect Congress to be when you got there? And what, what was it when you arrived? You know, my expectation of it was, I think people go in expecting you can do way more than you can do alone, or you can do alone way more than you can. Um, I didn't really have that because I had known teamwork, you know, through the military and everything. Uh, I knew that in order to achieve things, you have to work together as a team. It's kind of a big problem our Republican Party's having today. Um, so I think my biggest expectation that was thrown out was just how busy it really is. People look at the calendar and they say, oh, you're off in August or you have this week off. But they forget that you have to go home, you're traveling your district, you have all these pressures from everywhere else. And, and to me, I think what was, what was the biggest surprise was the 80 or 90 hour work weeks you put in. The, uh, and obviously I saw it from the other side, but uh, what defined your, your period in Congress, not you personally, but the Congress itself, was very much uh, opposition to yep. uh, Obama. Uh, was that it was politically, I guess, valuable uh, for Republicans? Was it was it healthy for the party in the long run? No, and it's not good for the country. And this is not that anybody's going to listen to me, but the advice I'd give to my friends in the on the other side of the aisle is, you know, our mistake was at the beginning when we came in, 
we had a real opportunity to work with the president on a couple of things. Uh, one was when we reached that the whole debt limit issue, yeah. um, and we're under sequester today. We had we had gotten between the president and John Boehner very close to a to a deal, and for whatever reason, both sides claim it's the other side. For whatever reason, it fell apart. But had a deal side, on the larger debt on issue. On the larger debt issue. And we yeah. wouldn't be under sequester today. We'd have had some good reforms. And I think Americans would have felt better about government. And then it was like kind of after. The, and in 2012, when we lost the race in 2012, we went in January and got together and came up with our principles for immigration reform. We were going to do this. We were going to work with the administration to get immigration reform done. President Obama had said, look, I'm willing to put some things on the table to get to this. We were close. And then it was our kind of angry voices on the radio and everything else that, that, that shut that down within a month or two. You mentioned, so we're in our corners now. You mentioned that debt ceiling fight. I remember it very well. I had left the white house by then, but it was probably the nadir of the Obama administration. Uh, and it, we came very close to a crisis. You guys are facing another debt ceiling vote. The Trump administration, through the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, has said that he needs a clean uh, debt ceiling bill. What are the, How confident are you that Congress will give him that? I'm confident. I think it'll be both sides voting to give it. Um, you know, the concerns we've had in the past I never on the campaign trail promised to never raise a debt limit. That was something that my campaign manager wisely said, never say what you'll never do. And the debt limit is not the permission to spend the money. The money's spent. A, a debt limit basically says you got your credit card bill, and to save money, you're just not going to pay your credit card. That's what a debt limit is. So I believe it's fiscal responsible to pay the credit card. Um, some people have tried to – we used leverage as a – the debt point is a bit of a leverage for in that debt deal that led to sequester. Um, I think that was okay at the time, but now look, we've, we've, I, I think to play with the good faith, people forget the market fell like 2000 points yeah. when we were close to that, to that anyway. Yeah, it was a so disaster. It's real impact. Yeah. Uh, you're uh, one of the recognized, you're certainly the, one of the most uh, uh, valuable and interesting uh, spokespeople on national security issues now in your committee. Uh, assignment uh, on, I guess, foreign relations yeah, foreign affairs, yeah. uh, uh, gives you that uh, platform. Uh, tell me where we are in the world today, because we 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 we're facing uh, this emerging threat in North Korea, maybe more than emerging uh, civil war in Syria, uh, obviously uh, tensions with Russia. Just give me a little tour, starting with North Korea. So North Korea is in a very frightening position. Um, I, I got a good classified brief on it just about a week ago before this even second ICBM test. Um, they are way further along than we expected them to be. Um, it, this, is, this is bad, and that's just what it comes down to. And, and you know I think we have to prepare quickly for three different things. Number one, we have to continue to increase our missile defense system, which President Obama and President Bush did very well. We have to continue to do that to stay in front of the threat. We have to leverage more pressure against China to include areas, businesses that do business in both North Korea and the United States. That gives us a lot of leverage. Um, but lastly, we have to prepare for military action and hope, pray God, we never, ever, ever have to use it. It would be devastating, but having a credible military option gives us more leverage in the region. Um, looking at like Syria, Syria, I think is one of the biggest drivers of instability. Um, half a million dead Syrians right now that is incubating ISIS and incubating extremism. Uh, one of the things that I get concerned about when we talk about foreign policy is this idea that when ISIS is gone, everything's going to be great. Uh, no, what I worry about is the seven and eight year olds in, in independently displaced camps or refugee camps. They're the next generation of terrorists if they don't get a chance to read, to write, and have hope. Those three things, plus you know economic opportunity, is the bi biggest disinfectant to terrorist recruitment. Somebody with hope. That's why we don't have large scale people turning to terrorism in the United States because they have hope. When you're hopeless and you have nothing to live for, is when somebody can convince you. Let to me kill ask yourself. you about this because one of the because the sort of skinny budget of the administration called for significant cuts in uh, the State Department, right. which I think popularly is viewed as having a lot more resources than it actually does. It's a very small part. Uh, 
of the budget. Um, isn't it in the interest of the country, of our national security, to try and relieve uh, some of these uh burdens and pressures that you speak of to try and make sure that people are educated, to try and make yep. sure that they're healthy, to try and make sure that they see a future of opportunity. Um, this, There is this notion, and the president's been one of those who's sort of propagated it, that America first means that we turn away from those kinds of investments. It seems that those kind of investments are the cheapest investments right. in our national security. So I was in Kenya recently, went to a uh, village where we're teaching them how to frankly feed and milk cows and giving them opportunity. We build a co-op for them. And now these, these and there's actually a guy from the University of Illinois that went there. And, uh, and this village now has hope and opportunity. Even though they make only $3 a day, that's way more than the 50 cents a day they had. So they literally look at the United States as having saved them. You're not going to recruit, well, this isn't a Muslim village, but you're not going to recruit a terrorist out of that. If you replicate that and give people in Syria hope through USAID, through State Department, through soft power, that's the best way to deprive ISIS of a terrorist be- Beside, except for a you know, instead of a 500 pound GBU, laser guided or GPS guided bomb, it's way cheaper and way more effective. There can be some reforms in the State Department, and there should be, but we cannot forget that mission. We, you can't complain about China's influence in Africa if you're not willing to invest uh, as well. The uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis, I think, testified when he was up for confirmation that if you give less money to the department the State Department, then you've got to give me a lot more because yeah, like we're going to have more conflicts. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and by the way, in these conflicts, we're wearing out our F-16s. We're wearing out our planes. We're doing war the same way we have for 16 years, so our enemy knows how we do war. So we're exposing vulnerabilities there, and we're going to have to recapitalize our, our stuff, and that's going to take a lot of money. So while we're engaged in war, Basically, you're in the red in the military in terms of you're going to have to pay for this later. We're going to take another break, and we'll be right back with uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger. I want to just return to North Korea for a second because uh, I I asked you a multi-pronged question, always a mistake, and you (laughs) were good to answer it. But um, how grave a threat is this and what is your level of concern about it uh, and and at the end of the day how limited are our options because you mentioned military as the unthinkable uh as the unthinkable option because of the bloodshed that it would lead to so what realistically uh, are our chances to stop short of that well, I, I think it's going to depend. I mean, their chief trading partner is China. And right now, China sees the existence of North Korea both as a buffer to us, but also they don't want the mass refugee problem from North Korea. So right. they, it's in their interest right now, in their minds, I think wrongly, that North Korea existing is better. Now, they don't want North to have nukes, but they also don't want to confront them. Um, so what are our options? I think leverage on China is important. Try to change their way of thinking on this. Uh, and the military options, president's engaged in kind of a tweet storm yeah, I don't like against that, them. Do yeah. you think that's effective? Nope. I, I don't think Twitter is really that effective on foreign policy, especially. But that's just my opinion. And maybe I'm too old school, even though I'm young. But on the military side, there is a we, we have military options to be able to take out their nuclear capacity before they launch it, to be able to, we will win. If there is a war in the North, on the peninsula, we will win. It's just a question of What's how many, how, including the South Koreans and, right. and the price they pay. Yep. And, you know, we've gotten, and I hate, this sounds de minimis. We should point like out a, how close Seoul is to... Uh, yeah, it's an artillery range of thousands of artillery pieces from the yeah. North. They've been preparing for this for years. Um, but, you know, I, I think... The thing we have to remember is we've been lucky relatively, and I know it's 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 it can sound heartless to say, but we've had wars in the past kind of 20 years with relatively light casualties compared to what they've been in the past. You know, the Korean War, World War II, et cetera. Um, it's possible that if North Korea happens, we're back to where we're losing as many people as we did in Vietnam, tragically, like war used to be. Um, so there's military options, but that is the last, well, I think the, the last, the worst case scenario is they're getting ready to launch a nuke at somebody or us. The next to last though is military action, but we have to be prepared and they know, and they should know that we will win, 
but there's going to be significant bloodshed and cost. So I'm not cheering for any military strikes there. But if they, if, if if Kim Kim Jong Un believes that he is doomed either way, then certainly he, like any sort of suicide bomber, uh, would be less reluctant to to do the unthinkable. Yeah, and that's the question: is is he a nihilist or is he rational? I don't know if anybody really knows that answer. I say he acts crazy, but, you know, he may be crazy like a fox on some of this stuff as far as he's concerned, not, I don't think, as far as in, in terms of how he actually acts. So um, that's the question. Now, we can't engage them in one-on-one talks now. I think it's entirely too early, but I think once extreme leverage is put on them, there may be an opportunity for some discussion. But right now, they're not in a position where they're thinking rationally, I think, on some of this stuff. So, I, you know, I wish I could give you like a good one, two, three step and plan on this. There really isn't. This is a very bad situation. And the thing that concerns me the most is if they get a significant nuclear capability, and we don't have an option against them. That's why it's important to, to show the options we have. Um, every other country is going to say, if I get nukes, I'm not going to get invaded. So right. I'm going to get nukes. Well, and you know, we already have seen the South Koreans uh, talking about developing their own nuclear capacity because uh, of fears that uh, they may have to go it alone. Or And that's uh, why it's important, too, to reaffirm the nuclear umbrella that we have so that we don't have allies racing to the nukes, too. Russia, uh, obviously a point of contention, at least between the White House and Congress uh, and the intelligence community, just for the umpteenth time, (laughs) do you have any doubt that Russia was trying to interfere in our election? No doubt. Why is it so hard for the president to accept that? I don't know. I think, you know, part of it comes from, like, he's a very prideful person. I think it comes from, he, he thinks if he admits it, that somehow this will take away from his election. I think he was elected because he spoke to people that felt disaffected, and he won in states that we never imagined we could win. It's not, I, like, I think he was legitimately elected as president. But, did pretty well in your district. Uh, he did, yeah. yeah. And uh, President Obama won in 08 in my district, and Romney barely in 12, and President Trump won pretty substantially. Um, but I think it's important. This is, it's not, this is what I try to tell my Republican friends. I don't care who did or didn't benefit or who was attempted to be the beneficiary of Russian involvement. Because I guarantee you the Russians are going to turn against us, the Republican Party, in two or four years. My concern isn't about 2018 and 2020. My concern is about the institution of democracy. And the basic thing, as ticked off, as pissed off as people get by Congress or by president, the one thing that keeps this whole thing together is the fact that people know they can vote and have a voice. And so when you basically say that an outside, it's okay for an outside government to influence the way you think by creating fake news, by propagating it on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else, people begin to lose faith in the institution mm-hmm. of democracy. And that, and I'm not being, I'm not being dramatic in 10 or 20 years can lead to really bad things. Listen, I'm, I'm with you on this and, and we should point out it's not just here, but Russia is active in trying to undermine all the Western yep. democracies, uh, in the same way. What, uh, what is your level of confidence that these probes that are ongoing, both the congressional probe and the one that Mr. Mueller is engaged in, are uh, are going to get to the bottom of whatever happened? I feel pretty confident. You know, the, the House probe has gotten very political. You know, every time there's a meeting, everybody runs to the cameras. The Senate has stayed very calm. Um, in fact, if there's uh, if there's a press conference, it's usually the two, the Republican and Democratic leader together. And Mr. Mueller, look, he's a Republican, by the way. Um, he's uh, he's a very good American, and I think he's going to get to the bottom of this. And so I'm confident. What, what I, about what what if the president tries to intercede and fire Mueller? What what would the impact of that be? Well, as Lindsey Graham said, I'll echo: there will be holy hell to pay. And I think just as he misinterpreted or misread people. Uh, when he came to threatening to fire Sessions or attacking Sessions on Twitter. I mean, even people that don't like Sessions were defending him at that point. Um, there was massive backlash. I think if you fire Sessions and then fire the independent counsel, it would be backlash like he's never seen. This goes beyond politics. This is, as I've said, just let the investigation happen. New news comes out and we'll comment on it, and that's fine and good and everything. But ultimately, Mr. Mueller... Mahler, I guess Mahler, Mahler yes. is going to find out the answers to this, going to present a report, and we'll be able to go from there. 
what is the president's relationship with Republicans in Congress right now? Because in the last weekend, he unleashed a bunch of tweets aimed at the Senate, uh, calling them, uh, saying they look like fools and losers. Yeah. And, um, and you voted for a health care bill in the House that he at first celebrated and then called mean, which yeah. probably isn't helpful to you and <laughs> your not, colleagues. That's not wonderful to say. So what is his relationship with the Congress? Well, if you asked me three weeks ago, I said, actually, I would have said really good. Um, I've been to the White House twice. You know, I was a President Trump critic, and uh, you didn't um, you didn't endorse him. I didn't know why and, didn't uh, you endorse him? Because I just didn't feel right about it at the time. You know, with some of the things coming out, I I didn't vote for Hillary. I just I I wrote somebody in. I haven't said yet who, and I'm not going to. But um, you know, I what better place to <laughs> disclose that? But I uh, you know I've met with him twice in the White House, and he's actually one on one, really charming, and uh, and I think he's actually a good negotiator. I was dealing with them first in this healthcare issue and he was listening to concerns and seeing if he could fix it. Uh, so I think president Trump one-on-one is very different than Twitter Trump. And, uh, the last three weeks though, the, the turn on session, the, you know, the constantly talking about Republicans, not as us, but them, that's something I've noticed. He's always like, they, 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 instead of us, um, you know, the house voted to pass this repeal and replace regardless of what your opinion is on it. The Senate came pretty doggone close, except for three senators. And this like kind of unleashing is something that I think he needs to be careful because at the point, his popularity is not too high right now. And at the point, people openly begin breaking with the president. As every president's experience, it makes life in the White House all that much harder. Reince Priebus is someone who is known to Republicans and helped rebuild the party. Uh, and was very, and it was, and is very close to the speaker, Paul Ryan. Is his dismissal another uh, burden in that relationship? I think it depends what comes next. If General Kelly's able to really kind of gain control of messaging and gain control of access to the president, so he's not distracted every minute, um, then I think that will be a good change. In terms of, so so that's one thing. But in terms of kind of the public humiliation of of mr Priebus, the public humiliations of one of his most loyal guys jeff sessions this is a big this is a going to be hurtful in the relationship because a lot of people and i've talked kind of quietly to some folks that were huge trump loyalists and still are and they're kind of wondering well what's the loyalty well, these guys were street. these guys sessions was the first major uh member of congress to endorse yeah donald trump and Priebus though he he may have been doubtful about Trump, uh, put the whole apparatus of the party behind Trump. Um, So there is a loyalty issue that that must occur to people. That's right. Loyalty goes two ways. And while a president certainly has the right to fire anybody that's not serving kind of the administration, and I support that right, it's... You should do it in private, and you shouldn't put it out on the public. If you're going to fire, uh, if you're going to fire the chief of staff, Ryan's, how about you just call him into your office and say you should resign? I think we need to go a different way instead of having these leaks out there. You know the Scaramucci thing and everything else, just publicly humiliating a guy that's been extremely loyal. That's what makes me uncomfortable, and not just for this moment. But I'm scared to death that this way of doing business becomes what everybody who runs for president thinks they need to be. And and we break down that professionalism of being president. The, the office is way bigger than the person. You uh, talked earlier about the fact that there are no black and white answers. That is not the Donald Trump way. That's not the fashionable view in our politics today. It's not the sort of conservative talk radio industry uh, view and so on. How uh, How comfortable do you feel right now? In, uh, in 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 politics and, and in your place in politics? I feel comfortable. I mean, it's it's tough. It's the toughest, you know, frankly, I guess the last couple of years have been some of the most difficult years in politics. And because uh, being in, in governance is hard. And, uh, and, you know, now you have to fight kind of both folks on your side of the aisle as well as the other side. Uh, it's not just an opposition. Opposition's easy. You can be opposed to anything. Um, but it, it's a difficult time, but it's, it's almost to me to an extent reinvigorating too, because there's nothing more satisfying 
than standing for like truth and what you believe in. Now, I don't mean that because there are black and white things in politics, I think, but also like there's right and wrong. There, there's in terms of your behavior, in terms of what you can say and what you should say. And so, you know, at a time when it's popular to scream and yell and call somebody names and put them down and say that they're bad people, to not be that, which I, I'm, I'm sure I've made that mistake plenty of times, but I try not to be. I try to talk professionally about politics, try to bring a good tone back into politics. Uh, that's actually reinvigorating. That's kind of the idea of standing, al- not alone, but seemingly alone sometimes. When you, when you call out uh, the Club for Growth, Freedom Works, uh, some of the ra- – radio and TV personalities and so on, uh, what kind of uh, blowback do you get and what kind of threats do you get uh, because you too face primary elections? Yeah. And- well, you get blowback and, uh, you know, it's, it's – but I don't want to live in fear of that. Like this job is not overly fun. I mean I, I believe in what I'm doing, but it's not like you wake up every day and it's like going to the merry-go-round. You have a great time. Um, I believe in it. I'm invigorated. Although, I, I although love lots it. of times you go round and round and you end do, up yeah, in the same yeah. place. So. Maybe, maybe the merry-go-round wasn't the best example. <laughs> but you know, you look at that and, and you say, but I'm here because I want to take a stand and do what's right. And, and sort of call out these kind of caustic voices on both sides of the aisle. Democrats are going to have the same issue now with kind of the rise of these extreme left groups. We, we've, we've fought with this too. And, uh, and I just show people, I like to tell people, look, if you're bold and you believe what you believe and you're clear about it and you're willing to work together with people, uh, I think people vote for you again and forgive it. You voted for that House uh uh, healthcare bill that the president embraced and then unembraced. And then unembraced. Um, and presumably part of the reason you did that was you knew it was going to go to the Senate and it probably wasn't going to be the final uh, bill you voted for. But the Senate couldn't come. They had right. the same issues within the Republican caucus that that you did. Yeah. Uh, is, is this – where are we now on this? Because the president says Congress shouldn't do anything but keep voting – on healthcare, well, look, the Senate's still in for a couple of weeks. If they can come up with some magic solution to get to fifty, great. We'll go to conference and figure it out. Um, I believe we have to start planning today for bipartisan fixes to this. To this, if we can't repeal and replace, I still am committed to repeal and per- replace. But at the same time, seeing what happened in the Senate. Um, we have to be realistic. And the idea of let it collapse and watch the place burn, I don't like because these are real people's lives that are affected. And for me, I, I'm a country first before party guy. And for me, people's lives, when they're hanging in the balance in terms of quality and health care, that goes above party. So while I'm committed to repeal and replace, and if they can come up with a bill, great. Um, today, No Labels, which I'm part of, put out a bipartisan agreement to kind of help fix some of the problems we're having today. I think that's uh, I think it's a worthy thing to try to begin to say, are there areas we can agree uh, in the event that this fails, the repeal and replace, because it appears that it has. And do you think that there, that, that the leadership would allow uh, that to move forward? It'll be hard to, you know, I don't know. Um, I think at the point we think or realize that a repeal and replace effort is dead um, and there's no other option, then I think there is no other option. Because the president seems to be uh, signaling that he wants to collapse the exchanges by withholding subsidies and so on. And I'm profoundly uncomfortable with the idea of watching something collapse because, again, there's real people that are affected by it. Mm -hmm. And if we can explore ways where Republicans can get some, Democrats can get some, and improve the current health care system so people are treated better, I'm in. If there's no way to do that, then I think these things will probably collapse anyway. Final uh, question is about you and your future. We're literally uh, six weeks or something away from when the filing period <laughs> starts in Illinois. I've heard you talk about your concerns about uh, the system and about where politics is today. You say it's not particularly fun. Uh, are you entirely committed to uh, running again for for your seat? Well, I, I I am. We we always take, or I always personally say that, kind of like right about now in September before you run, you owe it to yourself and your district to think this through. So that's what we all do. 
Um, I think it's an opportunity to, in, in the middle of this kind of caustic environment, though, to make a difference. And so while I'm always evaluating, because I told on my very first race, I told everybody, I go, look, the moment I don't think I'm the best person to serve you um, is that that's my last term. So I, I'm committed and owe it to people to do that. Uh, but my intention today is to absolutely do this again. Adam Kinzinger, I, uh, I appreciate you, brother. Anytime. We don't, uh, we don't agree on some stuff, but I never doubt that you do put your country first. And, and I uh, you. And I appreciate that. Yeah, and I you too. So Thank I you. really appreciate it. Good to have Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.